from 1993 to 96, I was a high school strength coach. I was the assistant strength coach at Westlake High School in Waldorf, Maryland. The, the head strength coach was a guy named Paul Kowalczyk. Paul was the epitome of the strength coach. Got up at 3.30 Monday through Friday to go work out. So he went to bed as soon as he could get home, pack his lunch, and did everything. He was meticulously disciplined. Had a 20-inch neck, a haircut like mine, and never grew. He cut his hair every week, all right? And he was the epitome of the intense strength coach, football coach, track coach. And when kids were, you think I'm intense, all right? Um, this guy notched it up quite impressively. And so when the kids would get assigned to, to my uh, weight training class, they quietly would go, yay, yeah. Because they'd come in, they'd say, he's so intense. And I'd say, he cares about you. He cares about who we are and, and how we succeed. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. It's just the way he is. Well, we're in a series uh, on 1 Peter where today we arrive at this section where Paul calls the church a spiritual house. And what we see is Peter notching it up and what it means to be a Christian. And the first thing we see is the intensity of Christian community, the character of that intensity of the Christian community, and how we live it out of the Christian community. And it's an intriguing metaphor. It's not just that Christians are citizens of God or children of God's family, but we're called stones in a living temple. Verses 4 and 5, you also, okay, are a living stone, you come to him, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. It means, literally, a temple of the Spirit. I want us to see the intensity of this image, because what Peter is doing, and what obviously God is doing, in an incredible way, he's intertwining our relationship with him and with one another and with other brothers and sisters, even outside of Christ church, in a way that's going to shock the average American who doesn't want to believe this. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 4 through 10 this morning and look at what it means to be a spiritual house. Uh, James Dunn, a British biblical scholar, says the earlier Christians would have stood out in a way that no other group ever would have. It's distinctive by the fact that they practiced no ritual sacrifice, named no one as priest, looked to no temple like the one in Jerusalem. And what Dunn was saying, and is so radical, is that Christianity came along that was the very first one in all of history that didn't need a temple. Every culture, every religion up to that time, if you were going to experience the divine, you needed a temple, you needed a priest, you needed sacrifices. I mean, how in the world are you ever going to relate to Zeus if you don't build a temple? Apollo. What you have to do is lay brick upon brick, and Christianity comes along, and Peter affirms this reality. 
and says that there is a place where you can experience the divine. There is a place where you can experience the Holy Spirit. There's a place where you can touch it, but here's how it's done. Not by laying brick upon brick, but by laying Christian upon Christian. What Peter is saying is you find God through Christian community. The Christian community is the temple. So first of all, he's not saying here, yeah, when you become a Christian, you automatically come to Christ, and therefore you have in some general way become part of the church and all who believe. It's in the present tense, verse 5. It says, we come as you come to him, a living stone. It's in the present tense. He's talking to Christians, and he says, as you come to him, you're being built. How are you a building? The fact is that you have to fit the stones together. There are stones above it, supporting stones, and stones below it. And a good builder knows how to put each stone on top. They just don't arbitrarily take them off the pile and lay them arbitrarily. The wall would crumble. You fit them together. And after they're fitted together right, then you cement them together. Peter says that's how we experience God now. You don't just lay stone upon stone. You lay Christian upon Christian. So what does this mean? This means in your Christian relationships, to the degree of the depth of your relationships, to the degree you're being built into God and into one another, to that degree God is inhabiting you. It's the evidence of being saved. Now, I'm not saying going or belonging to a church alone brings salvation. These people that Paul is, Peter is writing to are already saved. What they are is being built up because God inhabits us together. This is a saying, if you're a typical American Christian, if you want to have a personal relationship and you want to go to the church of your choice, is that all there is? Can you square what Peter is saying with that view? Some people say, I come to church every Sunday. But my question and what Peter is saying is, are you fitted? Are you built in? That's the image. Once you put a stone in the temple into a wall, it's going to be a good wall and it needs to stay there. You don't take a stone out of the wall. Stones don't leave. They stay there. And so Christians take the time to spend it with one another. Secondly, the stones also find their role in the Christian community. The stone has to be in the right spot. You have people below you, and you have people above you in this living temple. In other words, you have people to whom you're ministering to, serving, And you have people who you're receiving from, growing from. So what Peter and what God is saying is, look, if you're the typical individualistic American Christian, you want religion and you want a God who works in your life without having to be embedded into a particular Christian community with relationships, with accountability. If you want a God who works in your life without that, 
go get your own God. I don't work that way. That's what Peter's saying. We are so intertwined, and that's intense, isn't it? You just have Christian friends here at Christ Church, scattered all around. Are they intense enough? Are you really built into each other? Do you have a, a role? If you notice, you can only do this if you're in some type of small group. You know, when Peter's talking about this, it really can't square up with just coming to a big meeting. You need these types of groups where these things are happening. And the Christian faith is a community. And that there's an intensity to it, an intentionality to it. It's more than just socializing, fellowshipping, and potlucks. Secondly, there's a character to this Christian community that Peter notes that we can all learn from. The purpose of this Christian community is not just to have nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. We build a distinct counterculture. Look at verse 9. It has four very famous descriptions of the church. Notice that we are a holy nation, verse 9. We're built into a holy nation. One thing that's very interesting about this word nation is the Greek word ethnos. We get the word ethnicity from. Peter is writing to a multi-ethnic church. And it's fascinating because as the Pax Romana came across the Roman Empire, you know, all the warring nations became peaceful, relatively so. Why? Because Rome said, stop it, we rule. Get over it. Okay? So therefore, travel became easier. Therefore, the first time in the history of the world, you had these multi-ethnic cities with perhaps seven, eight, nine different ethnicities in them. All at relative peace because, after all, Rome ruled. And Peter is writing to a group of people here that are Greek, African, Roman, Jewish. You can read about this in Acts 13. You see the church in Antioch, all the different groups that there are there. Yet Peter has the audacity to say, a holy nation, which means it's distinct from the rest of the culture around it. And what he's saying is the church is not a club with one interest in golf or tennis or bridge. No, it's not a club. It's a culture. It's a comprehensive way of doing life together. And culture tells us everything. It tells us about our business practices, how to eat our vegetables. How it tells us how males and females relate. It tells us about marriage. It tells us everything. Our culture is a comprehensive way of thinking and looking at everything. And when Peter says we are a holy ethnos nation, he has the audacity to be saying, don't you dare think the new birth has basically just given you some kind of inner peace so that you can go about your own personal little life together with just little more than a little inspiration to carry out throughout the week. Becoming a Christian is not like joining a club. It changes our culture. 
We don't understand the gospel unless we understand that point. So what are we doing in our intense relationships? We're actually supposed to be comprehensively rethinking is every part of our lives together. Every part of my life is affected. My business, my sex life, my marriage, my civil life, my political life, my cultural life, my intellectual life, my aesthetic life. And not just that. He's saying Christians are not supposed just to be together to feel good. We build a distinctive counterculture that the world sets up and takes notice of. A distinct, holy nation. Also, we're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. That means that we are about creating a culture different than every other culture. Because every other culture in the basic world is, is based on some kind of power. They're, the royal priesthood is an oxymoron. Okay? Royal king priesthood. You know, the ancient world had kings, right? The kings carried a sword and told you what to do or else, right? The priesthood stands before the congregation facing the Lord, intervening, advocating for, moderating. In other words, the priests do the job like our Lord did. The priests were the health officers. The priests ministered to the sick. The priests worked with the poor. The job of the priests was the job of sympathy and service. To stand in our shoes, to be an advocate. The king was utterly different. And yet, we're called to be a royal priesthood. Jesus comes riding on Palm Sunday. And just to make sure he, we understand he's an utterly different king, he comes in a donkey, not a horse. I'm the priestly king. I'm the high priest. My royalty is service. My royalty is humility. My triumph is my defeat. Jesus comes in meekness. Jesus comes in humility. He chooses the most 12 unimpressive dudes to follow him, to be his disciples. And he's immediately executed. And what's the result? Spreads like wildfire. Changes the course of history. And still changes lives today. And the world says, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus says, well, that's the way I do it. Because service is power in my kingdom. So what does it mean to be a living stone and build a culture that's utterly different than every other world culture? Jesus Christ completely reverses the world's values. The point of money. The point of self-interest. The point of sex. The point of relationships. He created us as living stones to be a sign of the kingdom that has arrived. That there's a new humanity. That what it would look like under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Peter here is saying, that's what we're all about. We're never going to be able to develop this counterculture unless we have those intense relationships. Do you think 
getting together with just a few Christian friends every so often, coming to church, listening to sermons, being inspired, hopefully, <laughs> is going to create all this? No, my friends, relationships are work. We're an alternative community here across the West Shore. The church is supposed to be an alternative nation across the nation. We're an alternate people. So that's what we're called to. A people not accruing power, but service. So how do we do it? You see the practice in the other two words of verse 9. You know, does Jesus, Peter say, get to work? Here's the blueprint? No. The answer we see is this secret kind of culture and this kind of community that brings about a change of identity. There's a change of identity. This identity makes it possible to join in this kind of joyful service. It's not an identity that's built around power, social rank, religious beliefs. No. Those things are exclusive, oppressive, and eventually lead to violence. So the question is, how can you create a community in which instead of power, service is at the heart of it? You've heard Bishop Temple's quote often from my lips, the church is the only place that exists for those outside of it, right? The answer is, you need a whole new identity. And there's two planks to this identity. The first one is to recognize that we're a chosen people. What does that mean? Well, that sounds terrible. You're the chosen people. That sounds pretty exclusive. That's, that, that's not what it means. It's Christians are a chosen people, not a choice people. See the difference? Chosen people are people who are saying, the only reason I'm a Christian today is not because of what I've done, not because I choose to be good and be moral. The only reason I'm a Christian today, first of all, is because I didn't even know that I needed it. God chose to send his son to suffer and die for me. And when I was not even after it, God sent his Holy Spirit to knock on the door of my heart. I didn't even come up with the idea of repentance. God came after me. Therefore, I'm a Christian by his sheer grace. We understand that is what it means to be a chosen child of God. That's the first plank. And that will change your identity. And it radically changes relationships. That means that there are people out there who aren't even Christians who are better people than I am. They're nicer. They're wiser. They're gentler. They're more generous. And if that shocks you, you really haven't thought through what it means be chosen by God. You have an identity that doesn't understand grace. And you're prepped for power and exclusion. Every so often I hear a person say to me, oh, I'm, I, I can't buy what you're saying, Gene. It's too exclusive. I'm inclusive. And to which I respond, well, can I ask you a question? You have friends, right? Do you have any who believe in absolute truth? Oh, no. I don't have any friends like that. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? 
No, Tim Keller says it this way. You can be an overt absolutist and therefore exclude and feel superior to people you don't have, who don't have what you consider the truth. You can be a covert absolutist who says that there is no truth and then you exclude and feel superior to people who think they have the truth. Or you can be a gospel absolutist who says, I have the truth, but the truth is a crucified king, a servant king, who saves me by his grace. Therefore, I expect to find people who aren't even Christians who are better people than I am by the world's standards. It'll force you to either understand Christianity or give it up. We are chosen people by his sheer grace. Secondly, notice we're also a people belonging to God. We're a chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, and last of all, a people who belong to God. It could also be translated a treasured people. The other side of Christian identity is not only that we're a sinner saved by grace, but that we're a treasured people, period. So what do you get for the person who has it all? I mean, how hard do you have to work for God when you recognize that you're treasured? God has the mountains. He has the seas. He has everything. You know, there's, he has all of that, and yet there's something he treasures above all. Who is that? You. Me. It's us. Or he wouldn't have sent his son, Jesus. We have to have that understanding. And therefore, we go out into lives of service and compassion and love. Yeah, serving people feels good, but if that's the only reason you do it, because you serve, because you feel good, not out of being treasured, because I have to be a humble person, therefore I serve, you're basically using them so you can get the feeling. But when you recognize you're a treasured person, you go out and work because you're already treasured. All exclusion, all oppression, gone. I move out in a life of service, and it totally changes my identity, recognizing that changes my understanding of success, money, sex, where do I get my identity from? Coming to him. Recognizing that I'm a living stone built into the wall. I got some people above me and some people below me. How cool is that? We're all fitted together. You can't just leave this house. And what that means is that we truly do expect to find people who are better than us. It's not about that. It's about growing and knowing and serving in, in him in all aspects. Because he's done it all. Because the reason we don't have a temple, the reason we don't have a literal altar, is because Jesus was the sacrifice. He's the priest. He's the temple. Jesus has done it all. That's how I know I'm treasured, or God wouldn't have given him up. That's how I know I'm chosen. 
I am so bad that nothing less than the Son of God can save me. If you bring that reality into your life, it will change everything. And so, let him call us intense. Because intensity brings a character, and that character brings a lifestyle that's contagious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us all that we need to create a community that the world would be astounded by. And we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to affect in us the lives that you have for us here at Christ Church. Help us to be living stones and not merely an institution. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Amen.